Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. It is The Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn. Sitting in for Bill Press today on a Thursday. Is that right? It's Thursday. I've lost track of the days. It's a Thursday, February 21st. 21st. I'm telling you, I'm just getting warmed up. Stay with me. It's the day after a snow day here in Washington, D.C. It wasn't as bad as people predicted, but we got some snow yesterday. It was really icy at one point, but the accumulation was not great where I live. What's amazing is here in D.C., the accumulation was not so bad. Up at home, because I live outside of the city, so much snow. That's great. Did you go sledding? No, I didn't go slow. No. I did, didn't go slow. Did you go on a dog walk in the snow? I did take the dog okay. for a walk in the That's snow. That's equally as pleasurable. It's so nice. It's so nice. Uh, the kids went out and played with it but in the snow. But I, I I took the dog for a walk and I took a nap. That's nice, too. Yeah. Peak snow day activity. Okay. Disagree. It could have involved a bath or a book. Maybe I did take a bath. Okay. Then that's peak. I have a whole thing of bath bombs that I got for Christmas. And I took a bath bomb bath. That is the best. So nice. Bath bombs are wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I love I always, it. like, savor them, and I'm like, should this be a regular bath or a bath bomb bath? Always look for an excuse for a bath bomb bath. That's 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 my rule. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn. I'm going to be sitting in for Bill Press today, along with the help of Ray Rogers. Uh, McKenna is also here, also Cyprian Bolding, keeping us on uh, Free Speech TV and YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Uh, those of you who have watched the show uh, for a while know that one of my least favorite people who has ever walked the face of the earth is... Sean Spicer. I I try I try to say I try not to say I hate anybody, right? But I hate Sean Spicer. I just don't like him. 
I think he embodies everything that is terrible about politics and Washington, D.C. And, and all of that. And what's funny is Sean Spicer, you know, when you're a press secretary, it's really just like a gigantic trampoline to a big job, right? All It happens to everybody. Uh, Jay Carney now works with Amazon. Uh, one of them, one of the former press secretary, Robert Gibbs, I think works with Uber. Um, you know, somebody went to go work with Google, right? Like you work with the biggest companies in the world. And Sean Spicer left the job of press secretary and couldn't get hired anywhere. Well, he has a new job on TV's Extra, which is like a tabloid news magazine. And he's now special correspondent for, like, D.C. issues. So he interviewed the Secretary of State and his wife for extra, talking about really hard-hitting issues. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Susan, welcome to Extra. That's Thank great. you. That's great to be on Extra. When you travel, great do you have extra. anything that's on an iTunes list or your, your downloads? I go back to my, my high school. I uh, have a big ACDC collection of country what? music, too. We love Toby Keith and all oh, the really? Toby all the Keith? We're from Kansas. He adores Queen. So, I mean, we saw <laughs> that. Rhapsody. Absolutely. We saw Bohemian okay. Rhapsody first weekend. And A Star is Born. We usually always stay at home and watch and fight it out among ourselves. It's kind of like a Super Bowl. <laughs> but you, the, however. This year, I'm likely to be on an airplane, and so yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to make sure the crew can get it tuned in for me. I mean, you know, gosh. I, I, I love Bohemian Rhapsody. Who cares? Who gives a ripe F? Also, I have to say, this is a constant problem that I have. When people who I think are bad share the same tastes as me, I question whether or not those tastes were actually ever any good. I love ACDC. Bohemian Rhapsody was a really well done movie. I can't like I, I like they're now tainted to it's like Ted Cruz. He loves The Simpsons. I can't like The Simpsons because Ted Ryan Cruz loves them. Where's all birds? Yeah. Done. It's I, I hate it. I hate it when these goblins like stuff that I like. It drives me crazy. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's right. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show is where you could go to get a live video of the program. But if you can't catch it live, hey, no sweat. We keep them up there. The whole show is right there on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And you know what's great is if you just hit subscribe, if you hit subscribe, It'll let you know when we're live. It'll let you know when we post new video. It'll just give you a little push notification, and then boom, you got it, right? It's easy peasy, uh, and thank you to um, the tens of thousands of people that are following us on YouTube uh, already, and we'd like to get a few more, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Uh, also have to point out that we uh, have a very active Twitter account, especially during the program, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, I want to be uh, reading your comments throughout the program. So if you have anything to say, find us there on Twitter, at BP Show. I'm also tweeting at Peter Ogburn. Uh, but if you, if you get it into us, uh, maybe I'll read it during the show. Only the good ones, though. Only the good ones. And when I say good, I don't mean 
complimentary. I mean, like, they could be a, a, ne a negative tweet about what we're doing or what we're saying, but as long as they're crafted well, we'll read them. Exactly. That's and right, right? Yeah, that's. I think that's, that's fair. fair. Yeah, we read constructive criticism on air. And also, we try to run a really relevant poll every day, so yeah. make sure to have your voice heard that way, too. We, uh, I, I, I want to start out talking about, because we had a poll the other day about uh, Bernie Sanders. Will you vote for Bernie Sanders in 2020? And it, it's it, it, the Bernie situation this time around is really fascinating to me because I was not sure if Bernie was going to have the same heat that he had in, in 2015 and 2016, right? Like there was obviously he he's began a, a, a very serious movement back then. And would he still be able to carry the same amount of heat? Well, 24 hours after his announcement, the full totals are in. Bernie Sanders raised $6 million in 24 hours. That is amazing. That is amazing. I mean, he raised in just four hours almost four to one what Kamala was able to raise, and she was the front runner at that point. Kamala Harris had a very impressive rollout, and people talked about how much money she was able to raise, and they were shocked at how much money she was able to raise. She raised $1.5 million. Which is huge. Which is a lot for of the, money. For the first day, and we are two years out from the election. Yeah. Uh, $1.5 million in the first 24 hours for Kamala Harris. Uh, $1 million, weirdly, for Amy Klobuchar uh, in the first 40, 48 hours. I find that to be most surprising, actually. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Amy Klobuchar thing, I think, is going to be really interesting to watch for Democrats because I think, as of now, there are a lot of Republicans who like Amy Klobuchar. There was that story that came out that—, that there are a lot of Republicans that actually are really into Amy Klobuchar. Now, will they vote for someone other than Donald Trump? Probably not. I'm going to guess no, considering how they kowtow to him. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Uh, but look, you know, you take 1.5 million for Kamala Harris in the first 48 or the first 24 hours, excuse me, versus Bernie Sanders with six million in the first 24 hours. That says a lot about where Bernie is and what his his influence could be on this election. That was the big question that needed to be answered for me, uh, or one of the big questions that needed to be answered for me about Bernie's candidacy is, do people still care? And gosh, they, they clearly do. Um, and, you know, we've even had this conversation off air here among the show, like maybe this is not the right time for Bernie, maybe this is... Um, you know, he, he, he had a shot and it, and it sort of, you know, the times have changed. But it's clear that, like, a lot of the same issues that existed when he ran in 2015-2016 are still there. They're still there. And say what you will about Bernie Sanders, he has influenced the Democratic Party to the point that they are now, all, almost all of the Democratic candidates that have announced, have adopted all or part of Bernie Sanders' platform. He gave an interview with our friends at the Young Turks uh, yesterday. Um, and, you know, Bernie did not run a flawless campaign in 2016 by any stretch of the imagination. And so they asked him, it's uh, Cenk Uger and uh, Anna Kasparian, our friends at the, the Young Turks. They asked him, first of all, what lessons have you learned since you ran a couple years ago? Were there specific lessons that you learned during that election that you're going to really look out for moving forward? And what are those lessons? Yes, uh, we have been criticized, correctly so, for running a campaign that was too white and too male-oriented. And that is going to change. 
We're going to have a very, very diverse uh, campaign staff, and we're going to do a better job reaching out to every community. I think that's great. I think that's the right lesson to learn uh, that, that, that Bernie picked up on. And one of the smartest moves that he's made early on is his campaign manager. Yes. He hired our friend, uh, Faz Shakir. I've known Faz for 15 years now, just about. I mean, he he used to work at Think Progress. and mm-hmm. He used to come on the show as a very young man. Uh, and he just, you know, it's been it's been really exciting to see what Faz has done with uh, his career. Uh, did a lot of great work with the ACLU. Um, he uh, did a lot of great work at the Center for American Progress. And now he is going to be the campaign manager for Bernie Sanders. I think that's that's a really smart hire. The other thing uh, that uh, Bernie talked about in this interview with the Young Turks was about his vice presidential pick because people are already. It's so funny. That's not funny. It's just interesting now how we're just like the a lot of the parts of presidential politics that come way later. We're now wanting to see right now. We want to see a fully formed presidential campaign right now. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just different. It's just different. Um, you know, Bill always talks about, you know, John F. Kennedy got into the race the year of the election, like the January of the election, right? And now here we are uh, two years away from an election, and people are already saying, like, who's the vice presidential going to be for all these candidates. Bernie actually was asked that question, and, and I think he answered it the right way. Which he would look for in a vice president? Uh, I think we would look uh, for somebody who is uh, uh, maybe not of the same gender that I am, uh, and maybe somebody who might be a couple of years younger than me, and somebody who can take the progressive banner as vice president and carry it all over this country uh as far as i can tell that's the correct answer <laughs> you know i mean he's he, he's he's learned uh a lot i think um again look i i, I want to be very very clear uh, my mind is not made up on any democratic politician there are some that i am inclined to not vote for uh and there are some that have definitely piqued my interest i i'm i'm not hundred percent on board with Bernie or Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris or anybody at this point. I, I really am trying to keep a very open mind, but it's really hard to deny that the power that Bernie Sanders had in t- the 2016 campaign is still very much there. It's still very much there. Uh, while we're talking 2020 politics, Kamala Harris went on the daily show last night with Trevor Noah and look, Again, with this presidential candidate stuff, every single 2020 nominee for the Democratic Party has a problem. I have yet to see any of them that I say I agree with everything that they've done and said fully and completely. That that candidate does not exist. One of the things that Kamala Harris has to answer for is her uh, prosecutorial background and uh, how far she went with locking people up. And Trevor Noah specifically asks her about this one program that she started, advocated for, pushed for, upheld, and it's all about if your child was truant, you could go to jail, which feels a little extreme. 
Uh, but Trevor Noah asked her about that, and she had a, a, a interesting answer. You've come under criticism recently where people say um, you had some programs that some feel targeted minorities or communities that didn't have the means. You know, for instance, truancy programs mm -hmm. where uh, mothers were threatened with prison because their children weren't going to school or weren't where they were supposed to be. When you look at your past, I know what you're proposing now, but what do you think was the biggest thing that changed the way you saw criminal justice reform? Well, okay, first let me say this. I will, I will never regret having prosecuted people who molested children, people who raped women, people who murdered other individuals. Those are serious crimes for which I believe there should be serious punishment. Mm -hmm. And I'm never going to apologize for that. Well, okay. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody's asking you to apologize for that. He asked a very, very specific question about a very specific thing that Kamala had supported in the past. Yeah. And she completely just dodged it. The presidential dodge. I'm going to I'm gonna say something very controversial, Ray. I think that rapists and murderers should go to jail. Yeah, and I'm going to make, I'm going to up that and say also people who molest children should go to jail. I think they should go to jail. Right. I know that's a hot take. Yeah, but. yeah. I know that things have gotten very weird these days, but that that I think is something that I I think we all could get on board with. But that's not the question. That wasn't that. That's not the issue with Kamala Harris's prosecutorial background. Um, it's it's the maximum penalty stuff for small infractions, um, and I don't think she's given a great answer to it yet. She's still got time. And she can, and she can figure out a good answer for it. But, I mean, you know, you look at what the Democratic Party became. And for me, it's specifically under Bill Clinton. I think, you know, some of the watering down of Democratic politics began under Jimmy Carter. But you look at what Bill Clinton did to the Democratic Party, uh, and it, it should sicken us. It should sicken us. Uh, you look at how many people Bill Clinton locked up, uh, and you you know really tried to become a, a a conservative that way. You know, like maximum penalty, lock him up as 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 Hillary had to answer for on the campaign trail in 2016. Find these violent criminals and bring them to heel. Super predators. Super predators, uh, and you know. Bill Clinton was a bad example of it, and a lot of people follow that example inside the Democratic Party, and Kamala Harris appears to be one of them. People change. Times change. I get that. Uh, but that's that's not a great answer. That's not a great answer. I just had to point that out. Okay. Uh, let's talk about some news about uh, the really, really bad guy, uh, Donald Trump, because uh, we have some differences inside the Democratic primary, which we can hammer out. Those are fine. But Donald, the, the, the end of the day, it's Donald Trump that's got to go. Uh, okay. So kind of a bombshell yesterday. Uh, this This new attorney general who has been on the job for a matter of days, uh, sort of indicated that the Robert Mueller investigation is coming to a close. Uh, they are preparing for the Mueller report as early as next week. That is the word from Bill Barr, uh, the attorney general. This has been going on now for two years, uh, just about. And you've heard people speculate, oh, it's going to end before the spring of 2017 is like, you know, the original uh, uh, talking point. Then it was, oh, they're going to be done by the spring of 2018. And, oh, it's going to be done before 
you know, the primaries begin uh, for 2020. Well, it, it looks like we're there. It looks like we're there. And when the attorney general says that they're preparing for it, you got to put some, some credibility to that. Uh, now, there's a very interesting little sort of wrinkle in how this is all going to be announced because Donald Trump has his big summit with North Korea. And there is a tradition, right, that like news like this would not be dropped when the president is out of the country. That could, that could be bad for a lot of different reasons. And so Trump actually commented on this yesterday and he said, you know, this really the timing of all this really comes. It's it's the decision of Bill Barr's. I guess from what I understand, that will be totally up to the attorney general. Yeah. So he's just leaving it in the hands of his attorney general, which should scare you. Because there's a huge chunk of salt. It's not even a grain of salt. Yeah. That Bill Barr has questioned the necessity of this report. Yeah, I. I. I'm ready for this Mueller report to come out. I am also really nervous about how this is all going to play out because, you know, I think that we can say and everything that we know about Bill Barr is he seems to be more qualified than Matt Whitaker, but God, that's a low bar. Uh, So I I just, I don't know how this is going to be handled. The other part of this is, will we get to see it? And we don't know. And Donald Trump and and Republicans have sort of indicated that they might keep this quiet. They'll just release it to Congress and might not get out. My prediction is it's going to be leaked no matter what. But you have to compare this to, speaking of Bill Clinton, the Star Report, which was published in every newspaper. It was made into a book and put in, put on sale. Do you remember all this? Do you remember that? Well, you probably don't. I do. I only remember it in retrospect. Yeah, I was like in high school. I was in high school, so certainly you don't remember it. No. Uh, <laughs> but, like, it was the number one bestseller in the country because they printed it and put it into book form and sold it, and people went out and bought it. And to think that, this Mueller report might be hidden or, or covered up or uh, anything like that is is kind of shocking. My I, prediction is we're going to see it. I think another really scary potential outcome of all of this is that we see it and that the general public mostly moves on and doesn't care. Like we saw that huge New York Times report on Donald Trump's taxes. Yeah. And I mean, that is such a pivotal moment in in his career, and oh, yeah. especially in his time in office, and that just blew over. Yeah, nobody cares. Nobody cares. I wonder about that, right? Because I'm not sure if it's because nobody cares or nobody understands it. It's like it's really hard. It really is a hard thing to grasp. And it's so wide-reaching yeah. that it's hard to get your arms around exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. It's really hard to really take in the scope of it and understand all the different parts of it. And uh, maybe that's maybe that's the secret sauce to Donald Trump's success, right? Like, just confuse and bewilder the American public all the way to the White House. Um, so, look, we'll, we'll see about this Mueller report. Uh, Bill Barr seems to have the wheel of this, and... I, I my prediction is he won't release this when Donald Trump is overseas. I think that they'll probably sit on it if they have to, but uh it all signs point to the fact that this is um going to start wrapping up here pretty soon, which is uh pretty amazing, pretty amazing. 
Uh, some very, very, very distressing news I wanted to talk about. Uh, there was this uh, crazy story. Do you remember, Ray, it was just a couple of months ago that there was a, a Trump supporter uh, madman who was mailing pipe bombs to uh, Trump's political enemies and and members of the media. Of course. Remember how we just – that's another thing we just sort of moved on past because uh, that happened and it wasn't that long ago. Terrifying, terrifying story uh, yesterday. I'm going to read directly from the AP. This was right here in Washington, D.C. In fact, just in Silver Spring uh, is is where this happened. Quote, a Coast, Guard, a Coast Guard lieutenant who was arrested last week has been labeled a domestic terrorist who drafted an email discussing biological attacks and what appeared to be a hit list that included prominent Democrats and media figures, prosecutors said in court papers. The man's name is Christopher Paul Hassan. He is due to appear in court today, the federal court in Maryland, after his arrest on gun and drug offenses. But the prosecutors say that those charges are, quote, the proverbial tip of the iceberg. Uh, so this is a lieutenant in the Coast Guard, a lieutenant in the Coast Guard, who had drafted a hit list who, again, was going to go after members of the media, go after prominent Democrats who have voiced their opposition to Donald Trump. He works at the Coast Guard's headquarters here in Washington, D.C. He has um, pushed and espoused extremist ideas for years, according to these prosecutors. In fact, uh, they go back to June of 2017. Uh, that he drafted an email that said he was, quote, dreaming of a way to kill almost every last person on Earth, end quote. He was looking for ways to acquire anthrax and toxins to create botulism or deadly influenza. He also, in an email, described a, quote, interesting idea that included, quote, biological attacks followed by an attack on food supply, end quote as well as bombing and sniper attacks. These are all according to court documents that were filed by prosecutors. So so the thing about this is, you know, I don't want to tie this too much into the shutdown, but, like, we had the shutdown. And when you talk about someone attacking the food supply, well, the FDA wasn't really working during the shutdown. And there are a lot of Republicans who actually believe that the government does nothing. And that would be better off if we could, as Grover Norquist say, shrink the government to the size that we could strangle, or drown it in a bathtub. That that that's that's a that's a view that that that, that uh, is a mainstream idea for a lot of Republicans. So combine that with the fact that they want to uh, that that there are people out there that want to uh, engage in biological attacks followed by an attack on the food supply in this country should scare the crap out of you let's also pair this news with the fact that we have a president who is still going on about building a structure at the southern border to yeah. keep out people who are fleeing violence in their home countries well let me let me also mention a a very disturbing part of this uh because again we're talking about this uh coast guard lieutenant mr hassan in September 2017, he sent himself a draft letter that he had written to a neo-Nazi leader. Oh, great. As if this story couldn't get any worse. 
He identified himself as a white nationalist for over 30 years and advocated for, quote, focused violence in order to establish a white homeland, end quote. So when we talk about white nationalism uh, and we talk about these white extremists, right, like here it is, plain as day. This is this is one of them. And this isn't some fringe guy living in a cabin in the woods. This is a lieutenant in the Coast Guard living in the Washington, D.C. area. He walks among us. These people are walking among us. They are there. Uh, He routinely read portions of a manifesto that was written by um, the Norwegian mass murderer uh, Anders Breivik, uh, remember, who who committed uh, the worst attack in Norwegian history. He killed uh, 77 people who he bombed and shot. 77 people killed them. He also expressed admiration for Russia. <laughs> what is going on? What are, What is happening? Uh, okay, so we'll see what happens with this guy, right? But this, this should be a very concerning story. Now, you pair this with a new study from the Southern Poverty Law Center. 2018, they put out a new report. That said that in 2018, they saw the fourth straight year of growth in the number of different hate groups in this country. Great. Great. It's it's wonderful to see a growing industry like, uh, you know, hate groups here in America. They said that in 2014, they saw 784 hate groups here in this country. In 2018, excuse me, let me stop for a second. 784 in 2014, 954 in 2017, and 1,020 in 2018. Now, you look at that dramatic rise in 2017 and 2018, and you have to ask yourself, what what could the difference be? Who was president in 2017 and 2018? Uh, Heidi Byrick is from the Southern Poverty Law Center, and she actually commented on this growth. This time period dovetails with Trump's campaign and then his oh. presidency, a period that has seen a 30% increase in the number of these groups. Now, look, I, I, I'm... I think Donald Trump is very clearly a white nationalist and engages in racism and 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 all of that and that's very bad and that should concern us obviously. But the problem when you have someone like that is you excuse other people's terrible behavior. You give them room to grow. You give them room to breathe. And that is exactly what's happened. You look at this Coast Guard lieutenant who feels liberated enough to uh, openly talk about an attack here on this country to preserve the white homeland, as he calls it. When you breed that type of uh, hate speech and rhetoric that Donald Trump does, you allow people uh, like this Coast Guard lieutenant to 
to walk among us. And, you know, again, he's probably a very fine person. If you uh, believe Donald Trump. This guy uh, wanted to establish, quote, establish a white homeland. He had stockpiled guns, bombs, and as the prosecutors say, that was just the tip of the iceberg. So look, uh, there's no denying the fact that the recent increase in hate groups absolutely uh, dovetails with Donald Trump's campaign and then the presidency, as Heidi Byrick just said. Uh, And the three years... Before these numbers, during Barack Obama's presidency, hate groups were actually on the decline. There's a graph. I'm looking at a graph. It shows, you know, since 1999, it's slowly going up, and then you get to Obama, and it it, it goes down a little bit. Oh, but then it goes straight back up. There's something to be said about the leadership in this country and uh, the power that they have, and I'm not sure that Donald Trump recognizes uh, the power that he has when he talks about fake news, when he talks about the the dishonest media, when he talks about the Democrats and wanting, um, you know, things that they clearly do not want. You really stir up something in your most rabid uh, fan base. Uh, and this is this is the result. All right, everybody, we got a great show coming up for you today. I'm going to be joined by Simone Pathé, our friend from Roll Call, coming up next, uh, talking about the election in North Carolina that Republicans tried to steal. And we're we're getting closer to some resolution on that story. Also, we'll talk about the Green New Deal with Rebecca Lieber in the next hour. And our buddy Scott Wong from The Hill, all things uh, from uh, Capitol Hill. So stay tuned. We'll take a quick break. We will be right back. And by the way, make sure you send us your comments at BP Show, at BP Show on Twitter. We'll read some of those when we get back. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, it is the Bill Press Show. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. I will be here all day, like it or not. Uh, And if you can't watch the show live, I just want to point out, you know, we do put the podcast up. It goes up right after the show, practically. Uh, And you can hear the whole thing. We take the commercials and the breaks out, so you can just skim right through it. It gives you everything you need uh, to get through the day. I mentioned the uh, Mueller report and Attorney General uh, Barr saying that it could come out as early as next week. Uh, This morning, uh, Major Garrett from CBS News, I just have to mention this because I just saw this come through, he says that two sources have told him that the Mueller report could be turned in as early as tomorrow. This week got a lot more interesting. This week got a lot more interesting. Uh, Joining me to talk, uh, not about the the Mueller report, (laughs) Because there is there are other things going on. Uh, is a senior politics reporter for Roll Call, Simone Pathé. Simone, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Make sure you're following Simone on Twitter at sf Pathé, P-A-T-H-E. Uh, how are the roads out there? We had a snow day yesterday. Like everything was closed down yesterday, but everything's fine now, right? Everything's fine. Yeah, everything's yeah. fine. DC tends to freak out a little bit, a and lot. we didn't get yeah, a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot. <laughs> and we didn't get nearly as much snow as we were expecting yesterday. No. But like everything was still closed. Right. Yeah. I do sort of love that we still have this like school mentality (laughs) that like we can just shut everything down. You know what I mean? The government, OPM shut down the government at like 6 a.m. before a single snowflake had fallen. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, part of me gets it. Right. But also like, if it's not as bad as you thought it was going to be like, just pick up and 
Thank you, Cohen. Okay, uh, Simone, we've talked a, a, about the situation in North Carolina. Um, what a crazy story. Crazy story, and it gets wilder each day. So if you could, could you just bring us up to speed a little bit about what the, the main issue is? Sure. So there was an election in November, of course, and uh, unlike every other district in the country, we still don't know who won in the 9th district. Still. Still. Technically, the Republican Mark Harris had as a 905 vote lead. That has been called into question, um, most obviously because the State Board of Elections refused to certify it in the face of massive allegations of election fraud. Not voter fraud, but election fraud. That's a important distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, which we found out the other day when Bill <laughs> said the wrong thing and his wife emailed and was like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> But yes. okay. So we're talking about not just voters, you know, trying to corrupt the system, but like a massive scheme orchestrated by someone else to abuse the system. Yeah. Um, So anyway, right now we are in the process. Today's the fourth day starting this morning of evidentiary hearings by the state board to figure out what the heck went on. And what they need to try to determine is, was there enough fraud to have changed the outcome of the election? So right now in the hearing, we're hearing a lot about you know, did Mark Harris, a Republican candidate, and his con- consultants, did they know that this operative, McCray Dallas, who's sort of the the, the bad guy in He's all the of bad this, guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the obvious bad guy, and, and he refuses to take the stand, which makes him look even more guilty. <laughs> um, you know, do, do they know that he was a bad guy? And that's yeah. not actually the question that the board will have to make its decision on. It's really about whether the outcome of the election would have been different had this not happened. Um, So they could either decide to certify the election when this is all said and done. It's hard to see them doing that, given all the evidence that has been put forth already about a scheme and a cover up. Um, Or they could call for a new election. So that's kind of what we're all waiting to see this morning. We're going to hear from Mark Harris, the Republican candidate himself. We have not heard from him yet yesterday. Surprise, we heard from a different Harris, John Harris, his son. Yeah, now this I thought was fascinating. This was kind of the best part, the best TV, yeah, I should say. totally. Um, so he's an assistant U.S. attorney in North Carolina. Um, and so it was really interesting to see the dynamic between him and the Democratic super lawyer, Mark Elias, who's questioning him. And Elias is kind of praising him like, you know, you're a really like smart, articulate guy. You're a consummate professional. And it was kind of like lawyer to lawyer, you know, okay, they get each other. But it was also like Elias was trying to hold up this guy as this is the person you should believe. And Mm. really fascinating family dynamics. You could see credit to WRIL in North Carolina for live streaming all this and doing a really good job with the cutaways. So you can see different people's faces here for those of us who do not have the privilege of being in the room. But you could see Mark Harris was starting to cry and get emotional as his son is taking the stand and talking about how basically the bombshell yesterday was that John Harris's son testified to having warned his father about McCurry Dallas and that he suspected he was running an illegal ballot collection scheme and said, hey, dad, like, I think this happened in 2016 when Dallas was working for a different candidate. And hey, guess what? That's illegal. And I'll even send you the statute to prove to you that it's illegal. Maybe you shouldn't hire this guy. This was in April 2017. And lo and behold, uh, Harris and his wife ended up hiring the guy anyway. Yeah. (laughs) And so the son was left 
kind of with his hands tied and and basically had to say, you know, that I warned my dad and like, I don't think he's a bad person. I think he believed Alice sincerely and he was lied to. But you could see a clear family schism here. You know, day one of the hearing was really fascinating because that's where they really spelled out what McCray Dowless did. Yes. And how he paid for these absentee ballots, right? Right. Um, so that that has been very well established. Yeah. McCray Dallas, bad guy, engaged in this behavior. Yes. Was already a felon before yeah. any of this happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is bad. Right. Yeah, that's not good. Um, but now it's got now the case has to be made, I think, that Mark Harris knew about this and his mm-hmm. son being the one to do him in on this is particularly It is. It's something. I'm not sure what it is, but it's something. Yeah. I did watch some of it yesterday and watch Harris break down and cry, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I don't feel much sympathy for the guy. I don't feel much sympathy for the guy. Um, you know, the, it, it, we we live in these times where these accusations are made about election fraud, and Donald Trump made a lot of uh, accusations mm-hmm. about election fraud, which never went anywhere. There was not, there was no basis for those claims. And ever since then, every claim of election fraud that we've seen that has actually been legitimate have been on the Republican side. Right, right. and the f- Literally every one. The first allegations against McCray actually came out in 2016 when Dallas Woodhouse, um, who is the Republican Party chairman in North Carolina, uh, was looking for examples of voter fraud. This was when the race between Pat McCrory um, yeah. And Roy Cooper was so close, right? And they were looking for folks to be like, oh, this didn't actually happen. Like, look, election fraud, the Democrat lost. Didn't happen that way. The Democrat won. Um, anyway, it came out during this aftermath of the election that McCray Dallas in 2016, this is more than two years ago, had paid people to collect ballots. So this was out there. It was, it was known. Right. The, the You mentioned uh, Dallas Woodhouse. Brad Woodhouse is a friend of the show. He comes on all the time. Um after the story came out, we had Brad Woodhouse on the show, and he just ripped his brother apart, <laughs> uh, which must have felt good, right? You always, it's always, you know, the sibling rivalry never really dies. <laughs> uh, but it was yesterday that I saw Dallas Woodhouse, and how many votes was the difference in this election? About 900. So it was about 900, and Dallas Woodhouse had like a little whiteboard that he had with him of how close it was. How many ballots were in question? And even if these ballots were not admissible, he still would have won anyway by this many. It's just, that's grotesque. I mean, that's not the problem. Talk about missing the point, you know? And so the state board has already laid out that they know Dallas turned in at least 1,000 ballots. Oof. So. Oof. (laughs) Yeah. So what are the possible ramifications of this hearing? Because some of this stuff goes back to even the primary yes. with Mark Harris. That yes. like he might not have won against his primary opponent in a fair way. Right. That might have been rigged as well. So what the hell do you do? Yeah. So if there is a new election, I would expect to see a new primary. And I yeah. think Republicans will actually probably push for that because as you might have noticed you're hearing nothing about this from republicans in washington like, oh no they do not want <laughs> their hands anywhere near mark I harris why. so uh. <laughs> and even i think dallas had said um you know the another part of this whole trial is that 
early vote totals were somehow leaked early mm. and we don't exactly know who did it or oh, why and that was sort of the focus of Tuesday's testimony yeah, yeah, yeah. but he had said I think in December that if that had happened you know if one side or the other had obtained results earlier which is obviously unfair there should be a new election so even Republican Party institutions in North Carolina have tried to like protect themselves a little bit and not get too close to Harris. Obviously, that's not what you saw from Dallas in the room yesterday with the whiteboard. But I think um, there would have to be a new primary just because, as you said, we don't know. Like, Pittenger could have won. Yeah. Right? It's so amazing. I mean, this is just so amazing, and especially, again, at a time when so much scrutiny is paid to our uh, electoral system. Mm on the state level and the national level yes. uh, that this could happen is horrifying. Horrifying. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, Republicans in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. and how they don't really want to talk about it. What about Democrats? Because it was early <laughs> on that Cindy Hoyer said, we're not going to seat this guy. Right. If this, right. if this, you know, it, obviously now this is, this is, there's a whole hearing into what happened. Sure. But uh, before we got to this point, Cindy Hoyer said, we're, we're going to see them. Yeah, and that's pretty much the line you've heard consistently yeah. ever since November um, from Pelosi, from Hoyer, from the House Administration Committee, that um, up, ultimately it's up to them. You know, even if the state board decides this week that they're going to certify the election, which I again think is unlikely, but should they do that and, and certify Harris as the victor, Democrats now holding the House majority are unlikely to say, hey, yeah, come on <laughs> to Congress, right. join the party. Right, right, right. <laughs> You know, I just I, I, I think about the testimony that Mark Harris's son gave yesterday and I just I think about you know, how awkward that's gonna be for the Harris family. Yeah, and there's a lot of awkward family dynamics in this whole thing. On day one we heard from Lisa Britt, who is the yeah. former stepdaughter of McCray Dallas. So basically her mother married but has since divorced yeah. Dallas. Um, and she is one of the workers who was paid about $150 per 50 absentee ballot request She spelled forms. it out. We, oh, had, she the, we spelled, had the audio yeah. of her and she just... There is no question, yeah. right? But she says, I never thought any of this was wrong or illegal because I trusted my father. Like, he wouldn't let me do something wrong. And it's Oof. sort of mind-boggling and kind of sad because... It is sad. Obviously, there's family dynamics, there's um, financial dynamics. A lot of these people clearly needed the money yeah and they're doing things that a lot of us would say well of course that's wrong like you're stealing someone's ballot and filling it in yeah <laughs> and that's just not there's not a the, connection there yeah. for them. Yeah, yeah there's not a they, they don't make the connection of just how wrong that is and i think that's a problem everywhere in the country i don't think people recognize the the real damage that could be done by like you know uh, when we talk about Russia and their influence over the national election, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people will shrug their shoulders at it. But, like, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. If there's one thing that defines us as a country, it's the democracy. <laughs> uh, and the thing that that's under attack, uh, yikes. Yeah. Right? Like, that's that's no good. Um, so, in the meantime, it's just an empty seat. Yes. Yes. Do we have any idea when this might be resolved? Uh, we really don't. I mean, so step one is obviously getting a decision from the board. Yeah. Um, I think the hearings might wrap up today. I don't know beyond Mark Harris who else is going to testify, although we've seen like his consultant, Andy Yates, was on the stand for, I think, eight hours over the course of Tuesday and Wednesday. So 
it, this could go on longer than we think, but probably by the end of the week, we should know. But then the big question is the election. If there is a new election, when would it be? There would probably have to be time for a primary, as you said, first. Sure. Um, and don't forget, North Carolina is kind of messy anyway, because we're looking at the possibility of having new congressional districts before 2020 Yeah, because of redistricting. Every that's other state right, would be right. after 2020 because of the census. That's but right. you could have a whole new map change um, for all the other districts like before the next election. So it's crazy to think that you would have a special election under the current maps and then change again. Like it's just it gets complicated as yeah. it did in 2016 when Harris was first running, yeah. when the primaries actually had to be moved to a different date because they redrew the line so many times. So North Carolina is its own special. North Carolina <laughs> is a mess. It's kind of a mess for better or worse. Right. Yes. Like it's 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 a total mess. Um, OK, so we'll we'll see how that plays out. Today could be the last day of testimony mm-hmm. um, and, and we will just have to see. I want to ask you about um, some other pieces that you've written. Sure. And um, you, you've written a couple of pieces about failing upwards, <laughs> which is what Washington, D.C. is built on, damn it. We're all good at that. <laughs> yeah, we're all good at that. Uh, but you talk about specifically different candidates mm. that are that are either failing upwards or attempting to fail upwards. And I, I think it's a really interesting moment in politics where a lot of the norms from that we know to be true mm-hmm. might not be so true anymore. Yeah. So we're talking about mostly failed House candidates from 2018 who are now either being courted or being mentioned or considering, although they probably wouldn't say it that blatantly themselves, sure, sure, sure. running for Senate or even for president in the case of Better O'Rourke yeah. from Texas. But yeah. others include Amy McGrath. Of course, she ran for House in Kentucky against Andy Barr. She had this viral video that really catapulted her onto the national stage yeah. and helped her raise a lot of money. And so Democrats in Washington, including Chuck Schumer, have been reported to have courted her, you know, tried to get her to run. And the question is, Okay, she raised a lot of money. That's awesome. She's got some star power, some name recognition. But, like, you lost the 6th District in Kentucky. Like, how are you going to win statewide? statewide? And I hate to tell you, that fundraising base is not going to be there for <laughs> those candidates during a presidential year, or at least not to the same extent. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so there's a lot of questions that these folks have to <laughs> weigh, you know, if they should put their name out there or not. Um, another one is John Ossoff. Yeah. We remember his name. Oh, yeah. um, he has said very clearly that he would back Stacey Abrams in Georgia for Senate if she decides to run. But if she doesn't, he hasn't closed the door on anything. Um, again, he's hearkening back to that star power that he had for a while in the Democratic Party um, when his special election was really the first test of the the Trump resistance. But I bet you that that... How'd that work out? <laughs> well, it didn't work out well, yeah. for starters. And yeah. I bet you that that same enthusiasm and money pile, that's not going to be it's there. It's not there. It's just it's, flat it, out. It was kind of a there. one-time thing. Yeah, exactly. I, I, mean, I remember that race, and I remember that everybody was still very, very, very raw yes. from the uh, 2016 election. Um, Democrats, I mean, the amount of money that they threw into that... Oh, it was crazy. I don't want to say it's a meaningless race, but it was kind of a meaningless race in the grand <laughs> scheme of things, you know, like, but Democrats just wanted to win and they threw everything they had behind John Ossoff. Does anybody remember anything that John Ossoff ran on or stood for? I sure as hell don't. So, like, I'm not sure that he's the guy. But, you know, I, 
the term failing upward sounds negative, right? And, mm-hmm. and in some cases it is. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when you talk about like Beto O'Rourke, mm-hmm. Stacey Abrams, uh, they are people for a lot of different reasons uh, lost their races in 2018. And, um, you know, Beto O'Rourke's talking about running for president. Stacey Abrams talking about running for Senate. Uh, I think of Andrew Gillum, who uh-huh. has been mostly quiet since he lost yeah. the uh, the governor's race in Florida. I don't know where where, where he goes next. Neither. But I'm I'm like of a mind that like sure run for president, whatever. More people get in there, go do it. And this is not to take anything away from these folks. I think it should Absolutely be not. mentioned that a lot of them came really close. Like yeah. a lot of these people lost by two or three points in districts that were crazy red. You know. And also, you have to just acknowledge in. Texas and Georgia and Florida and a lot of places around the country, there was a lot of voter disenfranchisement. That's just that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so could they have won? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's hard to say what would have happened, but I think, like, in the case of Amy McGrath, for example, like, yeah, she didn't win. She had some, some issues. There was audio of her saying she was the most progressive person in Kentucky. Like, mm, that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she still lost by three points in a district that Donald Trump carried by 15 points. Like, that's not nothing. It's yeah. not enough to win, but it, it could be significant. This will be – and it's so fascinating to me how early we're getting engaged so in these early. races. I mean, it's, yeah. it's almost – it's borderline too early. But I yeah. – Look, this is the way that things are now, okay? I can't, I can't really fight that change. We only have about three minutes left, and, and we're not going to be able to do this conversation justice. But you wrote a little bit about um, the whole situation in Virginia. Mm. Um, you've got the governor, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, all of them embroiled in different scandals of, of, of different shades. Uh, they're all going to survive, right? <laughs> like it looks like they're all going to survive. It's crazy how we kind of forgot about that story. Yeah, like they're all still there. Yeah, and so we've all just kind of moved on, which is wild. It's crazy, <laughs> and I don't know if it's because it's an uncomfortable topic that we right. don't like talking about. Which I think that's part of it. Yes. I don't know if we all feel like there are bigger fish to fry when you look at what's going on, you know, in the White House, which right. I think is also part of it. I also just think that, like, there's a really – we as a people have a really, really hard time facing our own mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. And, look, there are a lot of people who still think that blackface is okay. And obviously it's not. Uh, but, you know, th- the fact that we even have to have that conversation around mm-hmm. this is kind of nuts. It is nuts. But they're going to survive. And how do, how do the people of Virginia feel about this? <laughs> so uh, from limited polling I've seen, yeah. it seems like the electorate is more split than I would have thought yeah. on it. Um, you know, we heard national Democrats and Democratic leadership in Virginia immediately calling for Northam to resign. And then, like, slowly that trickled out to some of the other It was folks. an avalanche <laughs> of Ralph Northam has to resign. Right. But less so for the other folks. That totally. It was more of a drip, drip, drip that, like, days later people were like, oh, yeah, like, Fairfax, this is kind of sketchy. Like, you should go to. And, yeah. You know, it's been a lot slower. Um But I think this is all going to come back relatively quickly in Democrats' faces, if only because you've got legislative elections, right? And so 
every single Democrat is going to be tied to these three Democratic leaders <sighs> incessantly um, and probably in 2020, too. And that's why you saw these three freshman Democrats, um, congressional Democrats, come out pretty strongly against um, I think all of the leaders. Uh, yeah, I wanted to point. ask you about the, the the freshmen from Virginia, who are all very exciting and very mm-hmm. interesting people. Uh, but they they had to take a stand on this. They did quickly. Yeah, you've got um, Abigail Swanberger. She defeated Dave Brad. Of course, she's going to be one of the most vulnerable Democrats in twenty twenty, just because it's it's a conservative district. I yeah. mean, he was a Freedom Caucus guy, right? And then you've got Elaine Luria, also somewhat conservative district. Jennifer Wexton defeated Barbara Comstock. That's a little bit safer for Democrats just sure. based on how the district has changed. But sure. yeah, they very quickly had to get out in front of this knowing that, okay, Demo- uh, Virginia might be trending blue at the presidential level in 2020, but yeah. like they're still going to be tied to the whole Northam scandal for probably the rest of their careers, regardless of what they say. Yeah. Because political advertising is not factual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you take one thing away from the interview with Simone, <laughs> that's the thing to take away. Uh, all right. Well, we'll keep an eye on what happens in North Carolina. The, the, all this testimony and the hearings should yeah. come to a close today. Keep it on in your office today. If you yeah, can. for sure. No, I, I I did watch <laughs> some of this, and I have to say, you, it's very fascinating. It's compelling. Uh, Simone Pathé from Roll Call, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, follow her on Twitter at SFPathé, P-A-T-H-E. We're going to take a very, very quick break. We'll come back and talk Green New Deal. Stay tuned. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, it is The Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. We are tweeting at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, I am tweeting. Well, I'm not really tweeting this morning because I'm hosting. What am I? I can't, I can't multitask. Uh, but I'm on Twitter at Peter Ogburn. Uh, I would suggest you follow at BP Show first. got lots of different comments uh, I, want, I want to mention. Uh, I, I made the... I don't want to say sin of mentioning the Bernie Sanders campaign early on. So we've just got like a ton of Bernie comments. Yeah. So I actually had a question for you. One of the most common Bernie comments that we get time and time again is that Bernie is not a Democrat. Yeah. He's not a Democrat. So I'm not going to support him. I'm just curious. What are your thoughts on that, Peter? I have thoughts on this because it drives me crazy. First of all, the situation in Vermont is a lot different than anywhere else in the country. So Bernie runs as an independent. Um. He caucuses with the Democrats. For all intents and purposes, he is a Democrat. But he, you know, he's, you look at the Democratic Party and some of the problems that they have, um, and then there are many problems within the Democratic Party, and, and Bernie hasn't tied himself to that. My other thing is, okay, fair enough. Bernie isn't a Democrat. What would you rather him do? Run as an independent? 
primary Howard Schultz. Like, I, I mean, but like, you know, I mean, okay, right. He's not a Democrat, but like he's doing it the right way in the sense that if he ran as independent, he'd be, and, and by the way, I'm not on board with Bernie necessarily. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm keeping a very open mind this primary season. Truly. I, I tend to like a lot of Bernie's ideas. I'm not sure if he's the right guy or not. But if he runs in the Democratic primary and Democratic voters vote for Bernie Sanders and they, they nominate him, that's how it's supposed to work. Right. Like these people that get so mad about him not being a Democrat running the Democratic primary, okay, he can run as an independent. And then he would probably ensure Donald Trump would be president for a second term. Is that Was that more to your liking? Yes, I agree with everything you're saying also. But I think that one valid concern is that they are afraid that Bernie has not shown or proven a track record of fundraising for the Democratic Party. And they're afraid that if he is in office as president of the United States, he won't pay attention to down-ballot races at the state level. Um, and I think that is a valid concern. I think it's a valid concern. I also think that it, like every major Democratic uh, candidate in the last several years has had that same exact problem, right? Like Hillary Clinton didn't give to down-ballot candidates either. Barack Obama didn't give to down-ballot candidates either. This is like now a new trend. So, and also, again, the Democratic Party, when you look at what they did, uh, not just in the 2016 election, but in other like local elections and putting their thumb on the scale in a lot of different elections, it's messed up. So like, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily want to give money to them either. That's that's my answer. I think it's complicated, but, you know, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers other people. Sure. Now, everybody tweet us your response at BP Show. We're going to get more uh, RIP my menchies, as they say on Twitter. <laughs> uh, we're joined by Rebecca Lieber. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. We're talking. You're from Other Jones. Uh, we're going to talk about the Green New Deal coming up. Uh, you cover energy and environment. And we can also talk about the general hellscape that Donald Trump has created by his uh, you know, EPA director and, and, and all of that stuff. Um, so... We played this clip earlier about I don't, we don't have to play it again of Sean Spicer because he's now an extra correspondent for the TV show Extra, yeah, like course. the tabloid makes TV sense. show. It might make sense, yeah. right? And he he interviewed Mike Pompeo, and Mike Pompeo was talking about how his favorite movie was Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, the L.A. Times did a, a interview with this couple in L.A. They have seen the movie Bohemian Rhapsody twenty four times. Bohemian Rhapsody was it was an okay movie. I didn't see it. I saw it once. Yeah. It was fine. <laughs> 24 times? I don't think I've seen any movie 24 times. Have you? No. Definitely not. I mean, like <laughs> even like my favorite movies that I own, I haven't seen 24 times. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk Green New Deal and general environment and energy issues with Rebecca Lieber. Stay tuned, everybody. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show here on a Thursday, February 21st. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Uh, thank you so very much for tuning in. Uh, we just talked about the Twitter feed, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, I'm sure uh, a lot of you will be jumping in to the comments. We welcome them. 
We welcome them. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at BP Show. You can follow me on Twitter at Peter Ogburn. And you can follow our guest from Mother Jones, reporter uh, that covers environment and energy, Rebecca Lieber. You can follow her on Twitter at R-E-B Lieber, L-E-B-E-R, on Twitter. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I'm doing great. Been busy on the climate beat, for sure. <laughs> Been pretty busy. Yeah. Been pretty busy. Um, I want to talk Green New Deal uh, with you, but I also want to talk about the general state of, like, you know, the EPA and all of these Trump nominees and, and, and all of that. I mean, we saw that the the recent uh, EPA nominee is, again, a lobbyist uh, that, that worked for big oil. Yeah, I'm sensing some theme here. It seems to be, right? How... How worried should we be about the EPA as a department in general and what the Trump administration has done to it? There's been a lot of damage, I think, uh, in ways that uh, you you hear less about than the the deregulation, which is certainly a part of it, but um, is still being fought out in courts, uh, is how they've basically um, diminished and uh, demolished the EPA uh, workforce its reliance and use of science. Uh, they've the Trump administration has launched these these really uh, insidious attacks on on how the EPA uses science, which has much longer term effects. Um, uh, for example, appointing uh, industry, uh, whether industry funded or perhaps lobbyists to advisory boards, uh, in addition to a coal lobbyist being uh, in the top position. So um, I I tend to tell people look at this holistically, and and the EPA's entire health is not in a good good place right now with lots of vacancies and shrinking staff and enforcement, and it's not just the regulatory policy that matters. You know, I I, I always talked about people that uh, a lot of people that support Trump uh, supported him because you know they think the government is bad and the government's not working. And they want to dismantle the government. And I think that they have been pretty inept at that for the most part, except for like the EPA. The people that they're putting in charge of the EPA are put there specifically to undermine the job of the EPA and what it's supposed to be, you know? And there's uh, just in public statements, the way uh, the EPA administrator, um, Andrew Wheeler, this coal lobbyist, he has talked about the administration's climate reports, which his own EPA helped release. Um, there are a lot of ways they've created confusion. I think um, the taking down the environment was ranked very highly on Trump's list <laughs> and his donors. Imagine that being very high on your list, yeah. taking down the environment. And it's not just EPA. You're seeing this at Department of Interior uh, and elsewhere in the government. Yeah. Talk to me uh, about the Interior uh, really quick. I, I, I want to spend as much time as possible on the Green New Deal. But where are we with the Department of the Interior? Because Ryan Zinke announced he is leaving. Trump announced that he, he does have someone to replace him. And he is... Well, he's another lobbyist. Oh, weird. Okay. Uh, yeah. This time, it's uh, his his primary client has been oil and gas. All right, um, excellent. Less, Great. little less coal than Andrew Wheeler, but uh, David Bernhardt. He was the deputy at Interior, and uh, he's he's very similar in background um, and um, competence as Andrew Wheeler. It's it's very interesting. You're now seeing the. Um, 
the people who actually knew what they were doing from the start, who know also in a better way to stay out of the media spotlight, but are carrying forth the same agenda. Yeah. Um, those are the guys now in they charge. They learned the lessons of Scott Pruitt. They learned from his missteps. Yeah. And, and Bernhard has um, more than two dozen former clients that he, um, I guess, name is recused from dealing with their direct business. But there's so much that the interior handles when it comes to public lands and leasing to uh, and and now opening the Arctic um, wildlife there. Yeah. And uh, Bernhardt is uh, the person in charge, um, though uh, when I did a, a profile of him last year, I, environmentalists have been concerned basically from the start that he was the one really running the show here. Um, so you're really seeing the seamless transition. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so there's that fresh hell. Uh, let's talk about some good news, some uplifting news. The Green New Deal, uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, has made this a, a signature of what she wants to get done and what she wants to push forward. Let me first of all ask you, how is it being received among the establishment Democrats? Because we saw Nancy Pelosi sort of... I don't want to say she was too dismissive, but she was a little dismissive of, of the Green New Deal. Um, to which AOC was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, she. Uh, so Pelosi, when it uh, had these dismissive comments, she did, I guess, walk that back a little bit, yeah. saying that she was supportive. I think that's that's the line that you're seeing from the I, Democrats in charge. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people took the, the Pelosi comments um farther than they should have. You know what I mean? I, I think that the people look too much into it. I think that Nancy Pelosi obviously has done a lot of good work um, for environmental causes, and I don't think she was trying to be too dismissive of it. I just don't think that she's as steeped in the legislation as, like, AOC is. Uh, yeah, I think um, the the key point about the Green New Deal that uh, is the and the most exciting part of it is how it changes the conversation. So Democrats are now having this conversation and yep. Pelosi um, and uh, senators and the committee chairman, mostly men, um, are brought to the table saying climate change is a priority. Let's now debate how we handle it. It's even forcing Republicans to respond, even though the response right now is to dismiss it. Um, and I think what what the Green New Deal has done in just this this incredibly short time frame is is bring climate to the forefront of what we're talking about because uh, we see the report saying we have only years left to really uh, address carbon emissions and we're just sitting on our hands. And yeah. I think um, when in just covering this and in my years of reporting on this beat, I haven't seen a robust congressional debate on climate. And it's it's very exciting to finally be having that. What's, what's really interesting to me, right, I, I, I think of... Uh, this is a weird poll, but like a couple years ago, This American Life had an episode and they said there are a couple of issues that Republicans and Democrats just talk past each other on. And climate change and environmental issues is just one of those things. And, you know, having come up in talk radio for as many years as I have, there are a couple of hot button issues that we tend to or tended, which things at times have changed a lot, but like we used to stay away from issues like abortion or gun control or climate change because people have such a uh, steeled 
firm opinion of where they stand on those stories that you're not going to do anything other than just piss people off. And one of the interesting things that the Green New Deal does is, yes, it's very progressive and it looks to be very impactful when it comes to uh, uh, matters of climate and environment, but it's also an infrastructure plan. Right. It's a jobs plan. It's yeah. an infrastructure plan. It is a, uh, in a way, a health care plan. It's a social justice plan. It's something to get the base excited about. And um, it's also um, it's it's reframing climate change, which in a way that I think it needs, because like you said, we've been stuck having this debate over whether the science is real. Yeah. And uh, the science has moved far, far past that point in the meantime. Right. While we're stuck even debating, <laughs> debating. if it's real, right. um, even debating the solutions, that's a conversation we should already be having. Um, and I think getting stuck on that, the the de- deniers versus believers uh point certainly isn't helping. And the Green New Deal gives Democrats something to rally behind that I think is is while there are there are points that are far to the left of where Democrats have traditionally been, it uh, it blends pretty seamlessly into these other priority areas that you're seeing for 2020 um, in ways that so this can be talked about more comprehensively. It, part of the problem and I and I understand this. I don't agree with it, but I understand with it. Part of the problem with issues of climate change and environmental issues is they're not tangible for someone who, you know, um, doesn't see the impacts of it necessarily, right? Like if I'm a, a truck driver or if I'm a waitress or whatever it is, right? Like I can't see the coming disaster that we're hurtling towards right it's not a tangible thing that i can grab yeah though i think that's increasingly changing uh, it is. the the extreme weather then the wildfires certainly the last year but really just the last decade that we're seeing record-breaking temperatures every year now uh, i think that changes how and you see this in the polls that that awareness of climate change is back up for across parties. Yeah. Um, I think also the fact that Democrats are now talking about what kind of legislation might we move forward uh, if we win uh, for 2021. It really it just draws attention to how uh how uh, ignorant Republicans have been on this debate, or ignorance might not be the right word because it's it's actually um, it's they're denying yeah, the science. Right. And um, I think it draws that co- contrast in ways that saying, I believe that we should address this issue for future generations. I don't that hasn't been working. That hasn't been yeah. mobilizing no, people in the same way. I, I think that's absolutely right. That, that sort of gets to what I was saying is like this Green New Deal are it's full full of tangible things that, okay, let's say I'm skeptical of the science, right? I'm not going to have to have a debate with you about whether or not the science is real. Let's just say, okay, maybe it's real, maybe it's not. But these great plans, or this these plans that are put in place by the Green New Deal are positive no matter what. You know what I mean? Like that feels like something people, even if you are a climate denier, and shame on you if you are, but they they exist, so we shouldn't ignore it. That you could grab onto and and could be a, like a, an actual winning piece of policy. 
Yeah, and um, there is a huge debate happening right now in climate circles and among Democrats on what the Green New Deal actually looks like. And um, that's certainly a debate that's happening. I think, um, though, the thing that I universally hear from people who who care about climate or at least have the least bit concerned about it, that they're glad this debate is happening, though there is... Um, some friction on some of the wonkier details. And and as uh, AOC um, and company hammers out exactly what this looks like, I think I, you're going to see some tension come out. But um, the I mean, it's it's again, it's this game changer that I think no one expected immediately after the midterms, which weren't exactly lifting up climate as the first priority for right. Democrats, that you see this youth mobilizing in the short period dominating headlines um it's it's a very different um environment or to be in <laughs> that poor, poor word choice <laughs> and, the and the way republicans have responded to this and and i think aoc more broadly this kind of pure freak out and and also strange making fun of her like her being young and all, all these things I, that uh, I think that's a sign that this has some traction and has some legs and Republicans trying to take this down. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. I think that there are a lot of Republicans who, you know, they could not win, but they could survive by arguing the legitimacy of the science and arguing about climate change and is it real and oh my gosh it's cold outside we could use some of that good old climate change right about now or global warming right Which yeah is- and I, I think there's parallels for other issues when you talk about health care uh 100%. republicans spent years running on repealing obamacare and then uh when they were in power Suddenly the question was, well, what are you going to do here? And uh, that, that's been a mess <laughs> right. for them. Um, and they've, they've walked back some of the, the things that they've, they've tried to repeal. And um, I think the climate debate has a potential for that, especially if Democrats, as, as they are mobilizing around this more positive messaging. Okay, so let, let me ask you about some of the details in the Green New Deal. Some of the things that, that uh, has gotten some scrutiny – uh, is this idea that they want to, they, meaning the people who back the Green New Deal, and, and um, specifically AOC, I think is the biggest face of it. Um, but also she um, introduced it with Ed Markey, who's been great on, on All Matters Climate for a long time, uh, that they are going to do away with air travel. There will be no more air travel. There was this um, FAQ that was released alongside the text of the resolution, which was pretty like polished text yep. on on the resolution front. You could see um, the experienced climate uh, uh, statesman Markey's uh, powering with AOC's vision there. Um, but the FAQ caused a lot of drama for, uh, and I think has been a problem on a on a public relations front um, because of how um, both strangely specific it was and also things that that they have not actually figured out. Right. Um, the, the resolution itself, the text is quite broad. It sets out goals and it's it's a it's a messaging document still. It's not legislation and it's setting out goals like 100 percent renewable energy. Um, it's setting out goals about transportation and um 
and uh, vaguely on agriculture. And these are all areas that need to be addressed and, and things like um, jobs and that we've we discussed before. Um, the 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 this the FAQ um, was a screw up, and AOC's office basically admitted that sure. in in how um, it, there were few few points that really. Um, but I should point out on air travel, huge and growing part of global emissions yeah. problem. No, it is absolutely. it is an issue. Um, I don't think you're going to see a plan from Democrats on how to ban air travel, but um, it is, these are all areas and it shows how far reaching the climate problem really is. Yeah. And I also, I mean, if we just step back from it, aside from the politics of it, right? So essentially what they're saying is they would like to cut back on air travel because it is such a problem. And if that means that we have high-speed rail in this country, which is long overdue, great. But let, let's just take let's just step back to like a consumer standpoint. Not a lot of people take the train. The ones who do love it because it's the best way to travel. Everybody that flies, everybody has a problem with air travel these days. Everybody, because it sucks. And so, like. From a public relations standpoint, <laughs> trains good, planes bad. Yeah, and like we I, could invest more in better travel. Who knows if that's that's the winning message in a in election? But the I don't know if that's the full yeah. message. But I mean, yeah. just like I mean, I I think it does point from out a point. and what the Green New Deal does does and um, mostly well is bringing together different sectors of the economy. So we're not just it, the goal can't just be a hundred percent renewables because that's only a piece of the larger problem. Right. Um, so that that conversation's happening. Um, I think the the messaging side of this, that's actually been most of the debate. And when you see like Pelosi and Democrats kind of dismissing some of the Green New Deal, it might be these that sometimes getting out ahead before um, before the actual how do we do this part, it might be ready. Um, so, yeah, I think there's um, there there were a few areas that it doesn't touch on quite a, as sure. in detail, um, and it's gotten some criticism for how it it talks about or basically ignores cities and sprawl as being part of the problem. Um, but uh, air travel, yeah, something we should be talking about too. Yeah, totally. You know, we, we talk about this a lot on the show that, you know, Republicans didn't really ever, they have never really settled for incremental change and small change when they have the power, right? Like they see something they want, they go for it, right? They're swinging for the fences. They want to get as much as they can. And Democrats, I think, have not necessarily put forth any like gigantic big leaps, right? Like even the Affordable Care Act. Um, did revolutionize the healthcare industry, but like a lot of the same problems still exist in the healthcare industry, right? And I think that whether it's younger voters or people like me who are not so young but are just fed up with the way that Democrats have done business in the past, they want big ideas. And the Green New Deal is not just a bill that addresses climate change, it completely re-envisions the infrastructure of this country, it completely re-envisions the economy in this country. It is a totally different path, which is daunting and a little scary, but also really exciting. Yeah, I think you just compare this to where I think we were 
just a few months ago with uh, I think the the big the big sign on that environmentalists were really pressuring Democrats on was 100 percent renewable energy. Yeah. And that uh, people some people kind of protested that this is crazy to we don't have we we can't get there. Um, the Green New Deal expands that. And so we're not even just talking about 100 percent renewable energy. We're talking about jobs for people. We're talking about retraining for the coal workers that Republicans love to claim as their as the strongest base. Um, well, we're a few years into the Trump administration and coal hasn't come back. It's actually looking as grim as ever, um, even though other parts of the fossil fuel economy are, are doing yeah, just fine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, again, and it, it the Green New Deal, when you take that, um, the some recent polling shows when you take it outside of the partisan context, it's really popular because at the end of the day, you're talking about you're talking about uh, things that Americans want and need yeah. in terms of healthcare, jobs, income, justice, um, and uh, the benefit of addressing a climate disaster. Uh, so let's break out of the Green New Deal a little bit and look primarily at a new Democrat-controlled Congress. Um, they are now able to hold hearings. They are now able to sort of go wherever they want to go. Uh, how have they addressed climate change? I know you wrote a piece about, you know, for the really the first time in six years, um, the House is going to have a chance to take a look at uh, climate change and and environmental issues. And how are they addressing that and handling that so far? Yeah, so this is kind of a concurrent effort as the Green New Deal, which is not really in any committee. But um, so uh, the the main committee is Energy and Commerce, Oversight, uh, in Natural Resources, um, and House Science all have some hand in uh, oversight over climate and environment. Um, so you're going to see uh, EPA and Interior officials hauled in to actually answer some questions um, and hopefully submit some more documents that Democrats have been requesting. So so oversight is the key uh, here of what Democrats can most easily do mm-hmm. um, and start to um, really more effectively push back on the Trump administration's agenda. Um, so on climate, um, there there's also the, the Select Committee on Climate, um, which has been not quite as clear as what its plans might be. Um, but the these committees can consider legislation. The, the, the problem is we're not going to get climate legislation signed uh, in before uh, the next election if unless Democrats take over the next election. And um, so the key right now is is really on oversight and because uh, it's it's the House and not the Senate with right. confirmations. Right. Um, unfortunately, there, there's less that Democrats can do there other than to um, keep these officials accountable on their ties uh, with with former clients and um, undoing <laughs> environmental oversight. Um, so gross. Yeah, I think that's the key here. So disgusting. Yeah, and the so far the committees, um, the hearings that were held the other week. Um, these are curtain raisers because, again, they haven't been talking about this in a not denier right. sense in for years. And um, the, those committees were were hearings were really this curtain raiser on climate as a problem. Um, I'm looking forward to Democrats getting 
past that again to go back to this vision and not just declaring something a problem with with less to say of what to do about it. Um, and and the the chairs of the committee they say they're working on it. They're getting there. Um, haven't been as fast moving because of this broader bureaucracy than AOC, who came out the gate pretty early with her Green New Deal. Yeah. So uh, in the time that we have left, we don't have a ton of time left. Um, what's the deal with AOC? Why is it the Republicans are so obsessed with her? Uh, well, she's been effective. And uh, I think I mean, she's I think they're threatened is is and there's there's been some really gross comments too oh my God. from Republicans, but um I I think the 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 threat that she poses and and her ideas um pose to Republicans has been this this point to latch on to. Um It's really they, amazing. I, I can't think of any politician that has polarizing isn't the right word, but uh I can't think of a politician that Republicans have been so obviously scared of yeah in a I mean, really long time yeah i wonder how much well the, the parallels to with obama coming into office probably don't quite work but um i think the yeah aoc um she's i mean i think the bar was set incredibly high just with the media attention yeah um so there's i mean She's a freshman congresswoman, but she's also um, it, it's incredible. She'll put her name on a letter um, or or in this case, the Green New Deal with Ed Markey. And she outshines in the headlines. Yeah. And, and that's incredible power it, for for a freshman um, congresswoman. I think um, I mean, you see her using that forcing conversations on climate and many other issues. Look, to be clear, this is absolutely her project. Right. But Ed Markey did sign on to it. And Ed Markey is a big name here in Washington, D.C. I don't think anybody's really talking about him and his involvement in this. Yeah, um, it's amazing. Like she part of it is a cult of personality of, of AOC. And part of it is the fact that she really knows what she's talking about and won't settle for any sort of compromise yeah the and and perhaps there's some uh, the green new deal being so wrapped up with her her um brand yeah we'll see if that gets untangled as as more 2020 candidates and, and bernie sanders is working on this um tried to come out with with their mark on a green new deal and their own legislation, I think um, it, it would be interesting. And I, I think probably wise for the Green New Deal eventually to, to not be so tied up with, with AOC's personal brand, because, yeah, again, we're talking that. about this huge crisis. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for now, yeah, the, these things are inextricable. All right. Thank you very much. Reporter who covers energy and environment for Mother Jones, Rebecca Lieber. Again, make sure you follow her on Twitter at R-E-B Lieber, L-E-B-E-R. Reb Lieber. Thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Had All fun. Right. All right. Thanks. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be talking to Scott Wong, senior reporter at The Hill. Coming up next, uh, where is Trump with his national emergency fight and how are Democrats handling it? We'll talk to Scott about that and much more. Stay tuned. Everybody. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed, it is the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. We've covered a lot of ground today, uh, and we still have a lot more to cover. Uh, I, I made a big mistake, I have to point out. I, I commented on 
both Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which means people have jumped into our Twitter mentions and it's just, it's, it's too much right now. It's too much right now because I mean, they are two politicians that absolutely get people talking. Um, I'm joined by Scott Wong, by the way, from The Hill, senior reporter at The Hill. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Hey, Peter, how you doing? I'm, I'm good. Scott, you're on Twitter at Scott Wong, D.C. Um, if I could, I just want to read a couple of comments from Twitter where we're tweeting at Let's BP Show. Uh, okay, first of all, I, 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 everybody calls her AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. John is mad at me. He says, Peter, stop calling her AOC. That diminishes her name. I, I'm, <clears throat> come on, guys. Relax a little bit, okay? It's a really I, long name. Yeah, I called her Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's a beautiful right. name. It is. It's yeah. a beautiful name. We also call her AOC sometimes. Just <clears throat> it, She does the same. It's okay. The it's people right. at the Capitol don't like it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Ar- people, architect anyway. of the Capitol. People are mad at me. Oh, oh, of course. Yeah. The, 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 the original. The, the OG AOC, <laughs> right. if you will. Right. Uh, the architect of the Capitol. Uh, KG says, AOC is a combination of everything the GOP fears and wants for itself. The fear goes to their bones. I think that's, I think that's really, really right. I think that they wish they had an AOC. Who was their counterpart? Paul Ryan? Well, you know what's Young, funny? like, talks a big talk but accomplishes nothing. Matt Gates, this guy from Florida who says he wants to be the Republicans AOC. Mm-hmm. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. I just I don't think he has it. <laughs> uh, also, KMFA says AOC is definitely garnering attention from the GOP, but let's not forget uh, the decades of uh, attention that Hillary Clinton endured from the Republican Party. That's true. Yeah, the Republican Party really did a lot of damage to the Hillary Clinton brand. Uh, so we'll we'll see if AOC can withstand it. Sorry, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Scott Wong uh, knows uh, so much about what goes on at the Hill. I-, I wanted to ask you about the national emergency, the right. national emergency declaration that Donald Trump declared. Um, I, I want to first of all start talking about. The Republican response, because we played not that long ago a montage of probably six or seven different Republican senators that said this would be a bad idea. Right. Right. How do they feel now? I think they still feel it's a bad idea. I don't think that's changed. Yeah. The question is, will they be there to vote with the Democrats when the Democrats bring up this resolution of disapproval. Ah, yes. Now tell us about this resolution (laughs) of disapproval, Scott, because this is very interesting what Democrats have done here. So it's going to start in the House, Uh uh, where, you know, obviously Democrats control the House. It's being led by AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's right. And Joaquin Castro, who is the leader of the Hispanic Caucus in Congress, but also happens to be the brother of Julian Castro, who is running for president of the United States. My favorite story, maybe ever in politics, is when I, I lived in San Antonio. Okay. Uh, and they did the swap thing. I did. I didn't realize they do the swap. Thing. They did. They did it once, and it was actually a big deal. <laughs> and I, I, oh God, I always forget, and shame on me for forgetting. But uh-huh. uh, it was Julian Castro that right. was the mayor of San Antonio, right. and he had to be somewhere else, and they had a river walk. Parade and they, they like when they do parades in San Antonio, they put the uh, barges, the floats, and they float down the river that goes through San Antonio. And Julian Castro was supposed to be there, but he had to be somewhere else, so he sent his brother. <laughs> and I find that to be 
awesome. I know people <laughs> get mad about it, but I think it's awesome. Well, so when he's going to be out on the stump and the campaign trail, send his brother. He could be in Iowa. Yeah. Send your brother, the congressman, to New Hampshire. Sure. You could you could double your efforts. <laughs> and they both know about right. politics. Right. They're both good politicians. Exactly. So, hey, exactly. have a ball. All right, so, so anyway, anyway. So anyways, they're going to they what we hear is they're going to introduce and roll this out, this resolution of disapproval basically blocking Donald Trump from uh doing his emergency declaration on the border on Friday. Uh and Pelosi just sent a letter out to all of her house colleagues, Republicans uh and Democrats alike saying you need to get on board. This is something that's important. We need to assert our congressional authority. This is unconstitutional. Uh, Republicans, if you care about the Constitution, you will get on board of this resolution of disapproval. So far, I don't think any Republicans uh, have signed on. All right, I was about to ask you how well they're doing so far. So far, it's uh, no no real response, right? From in, in the House, you know. Sure. In the House. I think Susan Collins in the Senate has said publicly yesterday she will support the resolution oh, of disapproval. Oh, interesting. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I believe she's the first and, and perhaps only one to date. Now, as you mentioned, a number of Republican senators have publicly said how opposed they are, but yep. you know, I think that you know, the devil is in the details yeah, exactly. and when they when this resolution comes up, which it will, it's it's a privileged resolution, the House will force a vote in the Senate on this resolution. Mitch McConnell will have to bring it up. Let's see how many Republicans actually are on board. Lindsey Graham is is the notable one who said he didn't think it was a great idea, who then after he declared it, after Trump declared it, said he thinks it's a great idea. That's the one that I can think of that actually, like, has been public about it. Um, right. Changing his tune. Right. But, well, you're right. I mean, th- there is going to be a way to to take a look uh, and, and see how they really feel about it when it comes down to a vote. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, you know, the the whole shutdown, wall funding, that whole fight, and they're all, you know, connected, obviously. It's been really interesting because I think that Democrats fought this in a way that has been more effective than Democrats fight things in the past. So how do they think that they're doing, the Democrats? I mean, I think this was a fairly easy fight for them to pick, right? I mean, yeah. Uh and and when you look to the polling, I think you're speaking to the polling that's been out so far. There was this NPR Maris poll that just came out a couple days ago showing that uh yes, while 85% of Republicans are with the president on this decision, uh overall How many? 85% are with the president. So it's a it's something that's appealing to his base. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, that's wild to me. Yeah, I think usually the number is a lot higher. Actually, oh and really? When the president does something, usually yeah, yeah, more yeah, Republicans yeah. are with sure. him. But what it says is that the base is with the president. But when you look at Americans overall, sixty percent are opposed. More than sixty percent. It's like close to sixty-one percent. What a swing. Uh, so what that shows is that. Both sides are entrenched in their positions, Democrats and the Trump supporters and the folks in the middle, the swing voters, the independents are swinging with the Democrats. And so, uh, you know, where that matters is is 2020. Now, 2020 is a long ways away. We're at what in February of 2019. And there's a million news cycles (laughs) before we get to the election. Seriously. But I think it, it sort of speaks to an overall feeling about what the Trump administration is doing, 
the folks in the middle are not happy about this. A lot of them want to see uh, this lawsuit go forward. They support a lawsuit. They believe the court should intervene in this decision. Uh, and so I think that's that's where we should be looking is these folks in the middle. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's really interesting to me to see how this played out because Democrats, I think, have for a long time been the party of compromise and finding something that might not be popular among their people but will get the job done. Right. And it, it was it was refreshing as someone who considers himself to be a, a, a leftist uh, to, to see them sort of say, no, we're not going to compromise with you on this wall. Nancy Pelosi famously said, we're not going to give you one dollar. Right. Or excuse me, we will give you <laughs> we'll one. Give exactly. You one dollar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nancy Pelosi is, is a really fascinating character. And, and, you know, we talked about on this show, I, I guess you could say I'm a centrist because I think Nancy Pelosi is the right person for the job, but I don't necessarily disagree with people who have some reservations about her. And that was during the speaker fight. Right. During the shutdown and the wall funding, I don't think that there is anybody who could have handled that more effectively and better than Nancy Pelosi. I agree. I think she's proved herself and uh, demonstrated why she is the best she was the best person uh, you know to become speaker and leader of the House Democrats uh, she went toe-to-toe with the president of the United States and you know think of anyone else in that position there's there's not a whole lot of people that probably could go toe-to-toe make the president look bad embarrass the president at various times in that fight um, you know she was she was definitely playing chess with the president you remember the whole uh, the whole State of the Union debacle yeah. where she withdrew the invitation and and Trump said he was going to ignore Congress and and uh, show up anyways and they worked out a compromise but that was all sort of uh, you know that was that was all part of her strategy in getting what she wanted which eventually was very little money for the border wall yeah yeah and and you have to say she beat him at that game quite easily. And I think what we're seeing in this past week, if you noticed this past week since Donald Trump issued that executive decision on the border wall, Democrats have sort of held back a little bit, right? Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that because, you know, it was this wild press conference or whatever you want to call it, the Rose Garden on Friday. I'm not sure what we call that. It was right. a statement where he said he was going to sign the, the National Emergency Declaration, but he also took some questions and it went in a lot of very weird directions. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but since then, Democrats have sort of faded back a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that, that was my observation was we didn't see everyone jump head first into that fight. Yeah. I think they held back a little bit because Republicans were tearing themselves apart over this decision, right? I mean, we heard all of those Senate Republican voices saying how opposed they were, how they believe this decision was unconstitutional, how they feared what would happen if the next Democratic president came along and issued a similar directive on climate change or on gun control on a various on, on various issues. And so Nancy Pelosi, I believe very smartly, and Chuck Schumer sort of stepped back and said, we're going to let you guys 
rip each other apart while we just sit on the sidelines and watch this unfold. And not only that, Nancy Pelosi was able to keep her caucus together from like going off and and saying things that could get them in trouble. For, which, for the most part. For, yeah. the most, for the most part. For the most part. Yeah, no, that, that, that that's a good point. So, you know, Donald Trump predicted in his comments in the Rose Garden that he was going to have to face uh, uh, some legal challenges here, and, and he was correct. He is facing multiple right. legal challenges. Right. Um, have the Democrats commented on any of these at all, or how are they sort of proceeding with that? I mean, I think they support the legal challenges. Yeah. We have not... Uh, What we expect right now is that House Democrats will either file a lawsuit of their own. In fact, that probably is very likely where the the House of Representatives uh, will file a lawsuit against the Trump administration, against the president, uh, challenging this decision in the courts. But I also think they will sign, you know, amicus briefs in support of some of these other lawsuits that are already moving forward. California always likes to take take the take the lead former uh, house member is the attorney general out there in california right, right, javier right. becerra exactly he's he's always out in front of these issues against uh donald trump and, and obviously the governor of california gavin newsom is yep. supportive of that lawsuit and so we probably will see at some point the house intervene uh through the courts but so far as i mentioned before they're they're taking a wait and see approach yeah. right now so the the battle is being fought on two fronts. One, the legal front, and number two, this uh, resolution of disapproval. Right now, the House is more focused on this resolution of disapproval. I think this could come up as soon as next week. Uh, when when the House gets back into session, we may see votes start to happen on this resolution. That's really very interesting, and I, I'm very, I don't want to say excited, but I'm interested to see how it plays out. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, when, when we talk about the uh, National Emergency Declaration, the executive order that Donald Trump uh, is, is pushing through to get his wall funding, um, one of the things that's lost is, like, there was an actual deal that was voted on and signed, right? Like, there was a border security deal that they that they hashed out. It wasn't good enough for Donald Trump. Um, but you wrote a little bit about the winners and losers from that particular deal, Uh we 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 know some of the deal. He didn't get the one dollar for the wall. He got you know over a billion, one billion dollars for the right, wall. Right, right. Um, but who? How has how is that being seen? Because I think that has gotten completely overlooked. Yeah, I mean, I think going to excuse me, going back to what we were originally talking about, I think you have to say that Donald Trump was a loser yes. in this fight. Yes, uh, and that Nancy Pelosi came out looking very strong. Uh, she was able to hold her caucus together. She was able to keep that dollar figure very low. Uh, you know, I think the House conservatives and Mark Meadows and the Freedom Caucus did not come out of this looking very good because they were the ones sort of advising Trump back in December that you need to stand firm for for your voters, for your supporters, for your base, and have this fight uh, in, in order to get that wall. And the result of that negotiation was essentially not a whole lot of new money for any sort of border wall. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't think that President Trump is going to be throwing those conservatives under the bus at all and abandoning them because they Although are. Although don't rule that out. Well, right, right. <laughs> he, has, he has done that to loyalists <laughs> in the past. Yes. But uh, I do because those are the folks who are 
defending him on TV on a daily basis. He, he watches a lot of Fox News. They're on Fox News defending his policies. And so he probably will not be, uh, you know, cutting the cord from those guys. Yeah. But I, yeah. I don't think uh, they came out looking very good in this whole fight. And this, all of this fight, all of these, all of this uh, uh, back and forth between the Democrats and Republicans. The background, of course, is the possibility of another shutdown, which we thankfully avoided. Um, but how much did that did the longest shutdown in American history, which we just made it through a couple weeks ago, how much did that hang over the head of, heads of people who voted for this particular deal, and put it together? I mean, the sense I got on the Hill, in the you know, in the past two weeks, uh, was just relief that yeah. the, that they dodged another bullet, that they wouldn't put thousands of federal workers and these contractors. I mean, believe me, the lawmakers were hearing from people with real issues, real financial problems, not getting paychecks. They were hearing from it back home in their district from their constituents and. You know, when somebody comes to you and says, tells you a story about how they can't pay for their medicine or, you know, whatever, uh, that that resonates. And so I think, you know, I think there was just a, a huge sense of relief. I do think that in terms of now, we, now we've enter, entered sort of the legal fight of over the border wall, right? Yeah. And I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Trump wants to extend this fight as long as he possibly can, right? Because it rev, if you look at back to that poll, right, 85% yeah. of, of Republicans are with him. He wants to rev up his base. And so the longer this fight persists, you know, into 2020, I think he believes that this is good for him politically. You know, I think that's a really good point. And even if we look at the midterms that happened just a couple of months ago, you can remember the news cycle leading up to it was Donald Trump pushing the caravan. Right. And all of this stuff. There was no other issue. That was the issue uh, for him. And, and thankfully, uh, a lot of Democrats didn't take the bait. And they kept on the message of health care uh, and, and all the other issues that they were pushing. But for, for Donald Trump's base and the way that he, his style of politics, that sort of fear mongering uh, still plays very well. Still plays very, very well among him and his people, you know? Yeah, and I think, you know, I wonder if twenty eight, if 2020, the 2020 election is going to be a replay of 2018, you know, where you have Trump just going with the one issue of immigration. I mean, so far, all indications suggest that's where this is heading. He's going to play up yeah. immigration and the border wall, appeal to his base. I mean, you saw the sign at his rally the other day. I think it was down in Texas where... Uh, you know, normally they would chant build the wall, right? And they were saying finish the wall. And they had huge signs up, uh, huge banners at that rally saying finish the wall. Finish the wall. So that suggests to uh, me that, you know, this 2020 is for Donald Trump, at least, and his allies is going to be sort of this one issue. I mean, when's the last time we were talking about uh, the president, President Trump's tax reform bill, right? I mean, people have totally forgotten that that was going to be the central issue that was going to help Republicans win in 2018. We we haven't heard about tax reform in in ages. They and didn't run on it in the midterms. They're not talking about it now. You have to wonder just how effective <laughs> that tax bill was, right? And and for Democrats, I think you're right. I mean, they they know the the tried and true. Uh, strategy that helped them win in 2018 and yep. pick up seats uh, in the House and win back that majority. And I think they're going to 
they're going to try as much as they can to stick to that, even though you have all of these other distractions happening in terms of the Mueller investigation, yeah. in terms of Russia, in terms of all these oversight investigations into President Trump. You know, and I, I'll give credit to Kamala Harris because she um, is the first candidate to really come out and say, when I'm president, if I'm lucky enough to be president, I'm repealing that tax bill. So, like, she, she's going to talk about it, whether the Republicans want to talk right. about it or not. Right, right. You know? Uh, so we only have about two minutes left. Uh, we the, the first 20 minutes or so, we talked a lot about congressional stuff. And now I just have to ask you, uh, as a Bay Area native, are the Warriors going to win the NBA Finals this year, Scott? <laughs> I certainly hope so. I mean, I'm thinking this may be the last time we see all of these guys together. It's right? It's entirely possible that... KD, KD gets traded to wherever, New York or L.A., it breaks up, uh, you know. Clay the, might go somewhere else. Clay, Clay might, go somewhere, might else. go somewhere else. I mean, this is why we were talking earlier. When you have an opportunity to see this team, yeah. one of the greatest teams we've ever seen in the NBA, you have to just go see them. Yeah. they. I mean, they have to win the championship this year. And if they do, I think we could legitimately say they might be the greatest team of all time. They're uh, horrifying. <laughs> And I say that as I, I'm a Spurs fan. Right. They scare the crap out of me. They are very good, and we may not see another team like them ever again. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Durant won his second MVP in the All-Star game uh, this past weekend. That's, that's some pretty rare air. He scored 31 points in the All-Star game. It was nuts. And uh, what happened with, with Steph? Steph did not win the uh, three-point contest. Barely right? lost the three-point contest. Barely by, lost by the three-point contest. Or something. One shot. But yeah. I will say, I think he had the highlight of All-Star Weekend with that be, like, <laughs> bounce pass up to Giannis. It I was amazing. See, I did watch that a few times. That it was, was amazing. amazing. Over his teammate, yeah. KD, who did not seem very pleased to be at the Oof. losing end of, of that highlight reel. Yeah. All right, so there you go, everybody. We, we spent like 90 seconds talking <laughs> NBA, okay? But we talked mostly about Congress and the wall and the fight over that. Scott Wong uh, from The Hill, thank you so much for joining us here on The Bill Press Show. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, remember, we are on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, Scott, by the way, is on Twitter at Scott Wong DC. And make sure you go check out our podcast. It'll be up here very, very shortly. Go get that on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you again here tomorrow. Stay tuned. This is the Bill Press Show.